Welcome to Twitter Travels for Pete, Next Steps Edition, where I interview former Pete for America staffers about what's next for them and what's next for us as supporters of Democrats. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have Liz Smith as my guest. Many of us know and loved her as the Senior Communications Advisor for the Pete Buttigieg 2020 primary campaign. But now, Liz has written a book, a New York Times bestselling book about her career in politics entitled Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. Hello, Liz. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being uh, for joining me here today. Congrats on your New York Times bestseller. Thank you. I was so excited. I worked really, really hard on this book. It took a long time to write. I never thought I'd do it, but um, I was so excited when I got the news. Oh, uh, well, you know, a lot of us saw that little clip on Twitter and I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> and you probably love seeing it, too, over again, how excited you were. You got to experience it twice that way. <laughs> well, like a, a million times. Yeah, no, it was funny. I was in the middle of taping a podcast and we were taping it over Zoom and, you know, they always say we're not going to use the video but um they did <laughs> they did use the video from that moment yeah. because it was you know so it was so momentous and my joy was so pure in this in that moment yes and you worked hard for it and you know I I just finished reading it and I wanted to thank you for writing it a lot of I think a lot of people feel this way because, okay, I'm a political neophyte, so I had no idea what goes on in a campaign. So, so that was very interesting, but I really had no idea how many, how many sacrifices you uh, political professionals make just to, to do your job and to, to get all that experience. You basically forego life normal uh, lifestyle like what we think of as a normal lifestyle. And um, it really takes a special kind of person. And I really admire and thank you for, you know, doing that. The, the reason you've, you've got this expertise is because you've, you've put in that work. And, uh, you know, you have to live on the road. You have to move around. And That's exactly why I wanted to write this book. When I was first thinking about the type of book I wanted to write, one, I wanted to write a book that was not you know, super dry or inaccessible to people who, like you, maybe political neophytes, where I'm just using very insidery language or very technical language. I wanted to um, make it a book that really anyone, whether you're a campaign junkie like I am, or someone who is newer to the process or unfamiliar with the process, that um, it's a book that you could enjoy. And, but I want to be honest, you know, about what it's like to, to work on campaigns and how you succeed. And it is not a lifestyle that is for people who want, um, a particularly balanced life. You know, it's not a nine to five job. You don't have the typical benefits. You don't have the two weeks of vacation time, but it's all worth it because, um, as I say, you know, politics is, the most one of the most important things I can imagine doing, and it's something that impacts every part of our lives. So I did want to give paint people um, a realistic picture of what politics is actually like, because it is a real commitment. 
And then the fact that you were so honest, and it was it's quite raw about your your personal life and how everything affected you personally. That's that's so important for us to know. I mean, that's that's the real life of working on the campaign, and you you can't sugarcoat that at all. And you didn't. <laughs> that must have been difficult no. for you. Um, is it, maybe some of it was difficult. I mean, like writing about breakups is not not the funnest thing in no. the world, right? No. Um, and writing about my father passing away, no, certainly not fun at all. But um, but I, I didn't want to sugarcoat anything because, um, again, I, I think back to when I was an 18-year-old girl looking to get into politics, there was no sort of guidebook or handbook for someone like me. There are political movies like The War Room, but you didn't really see female protagonists in there. So I wanted to provide a book that maybe an 18-year-old year old girl or 35 year old woman or 50 year old woman or 70 year old woman, whatever it is could pick up, but to understand the sacrifices that we have to make sometimes in this business and the harsh realities that we women sometimes have to face in this business, which is still very much a male dominated industry. Yeah. And it was, it was, it's uh, important for us to see the low level campaigns, like the war room is a presidential campaign. So we don't know what it's like to work on gubernatorial campaign or Senate or uh, uh, any kind of local race. So, and what was interesting in the book is to see how you just went with your gut and, you know, you didn't, like you said, nothing had been written yet telling a a new person, like, what's it going to be like for you? And so you figured that out for yourself and you knew it was the right place for you. And you just went for it because you thrive on that excitement. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I just, um, you know, how I got involved was I just walked into, I was in college. Uh, I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire and I got involved with young Democrats. And then one day just sort of walked into the New Hampshire Democratic Party's local office and started knocking on doors, um, writing letters to the editor. And then it was just sort of off to the races from there. Um, and that's sort of before my book starts, but then I got involved with John Edwards' presidential campaign in, in New Hampshire and traveled the country on that campaign and then, you know, South Dakota, Missouri, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So uh, is the fact that Dartmouth is in New Hampshire, does that make um, the, the student organization more um, uh, a, a bigger deal for presidential yes. politics anyway? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because if you are doing young Democrats or college Democrats in at like Columbia or something in New York, I don't know, I'm just thinking about something that's near to me. Um, you, you're not going to get the same amount of attention from national politicians. And you're certainly not going to get the same amount of attention from presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. So when I was in college, it was I was in college from 2003 one to 2005 we had the 2004 presidential primary and every single presidential candidate came through dartmouth multiple times Mm. um reached out to the young democrats multiple times i got to see them multiple times and so it's incredible and that's why it made it even sweeter you know what was it i guess 15 years later when pete won the Dartmouth area um, in, in the New Hampshire primary, although he came up a close second against Sanders, yeah. it, it was still sweet to see that. But certainly at Dartmouth, you got much, much, much um, more up close 
and personal view of the presidential process than you would at almost any other college in the country short of outside of Iowa. Right. So have you ever yeah. thought if you had gone to a different college, how you would have been, would be in a different career right now? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, you know, it, at the last minute I decided to go to Dartmouth over at Princeton. And if I'd gone to Princeton, there's no question I wouldn't be in politics today. So, but one of the reasons why I chose Dartmouth, frankly, was because I knew I, I was really interested in politics and I knew that this would expose it exposed me to it but I thought it would be more of a hobby you know frankly (laughs) something I would do in my in my free time and here I am 20 years later um talking on a podcast with you about (laughs) it so I guess not right well people should just go with their gut right just go with what feels right well of course I love the Pete chapters the most and since this is the Twitter travels for Pete podcast we're going to focus on conversation on the Pete campaign. And, you know, you and I met during the campaign. So in case our listeners don't know this, uh, you did a fundraiser in D.C. in September of 2019. And in fact, you are my chapter. Uh, you're in Chapter 7 of my book, which um, Traveling the Trail for Pete, my memoir. And Yes, I read yes, it. Yeah. The chapter is entitled Liz Smith in D.C. Isn't that clever? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I got to say the least favorite part of my book was coming up with the t- chapter titles because, I mean, it's I don't know. I found the chapter title process very extraneous after I'd written everything. But go on. I didn't mean to interrupt oh, you. No, no, that that was like sometimes you just have to say what it is and, you know. Pete's chapter, the one, uh, you know, you did a couple chapters, but the one that's, uh, that's, yeah. that is the perfect title for that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that one was easy. Yeah, that one was easy. Oh, my gosh. But um, I just don't want to forget to thank you for writing the blurb for my book. Uh, so which is on the back cover. And uh, then I realized, okay, everybody's buying online. So they're not seeing the back cover. <laughs> So it's it's uh, to put it uh, uh, in a, a very place of uh, importance on the website uh, travelingthetrailforpete.com. But thank you very much for writing that blurb. That was very kind. So anyway, you're in my chapter seven, but I'm in your ch- your book indirectly. Uh, in the chapter 11, the long shot on page 30, 230, excuse me, where you say, one good sign. So this was after the um, the shooting, the officer-involved shooting in South Bend, yeah. and uh, Pete really took, um, you know, as far as the campaign, politically, you know, we can talk separately, you know, uh, which we won't today, about how it affected him as mayor and how it affected him personally, but it really af- it affected the campaign quite negatively. So then you say, but one good sign was that Pete's true believer supporters never got discouraged. They were hardcore among the most devoted of any candidates. And you go on to say more, and I'm not going to read it. Uh, I'll give examples of that. But yeah, hardcore supporters. So I was one of right. them traveling around to events and uh, meeting lots of other supporters. And then um, it was later on that I started the podcast, but I was meeting a lot of other grassroots supporters on Twitter. And I thought, well, I'm going to travel to where they are and interview them about what they're doing. So um, I, I started that um, in late October. But in September, then I, I had already made friends with people from the Maryland and the Virginia groups, Pete for Mer- uh, P2020 um, grassroots supporter groups. And so um, I wanted to see you. I wanted to go to see you at the fundraiser, but I also wanted to meet them. So um, 
that's what the, the fun of it all uh, was. Uh, but so, so at your event, I ended up meeting your mom um, because she was off, you know, it's towards the end. And of course, I was, I was like staying till the end of the event, you know, if I traveled all the way from Minneapolis. And your mom was having a burger on her own over in the bar. Right, right, right. Yeah. I remember, and I yes. just thought, oh, I'm going to chat, chat with her. But so it was funny in your book how you described her as being, you know, liking to make friends with strangers. So, thought, okay, it's, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> but what was it like for you at that event? You know, was that your only fundraiser that you headlined? No. So that was, that was the, um, that was the first time I'd really done it. I did a slightly smaller one that day, but then I did, uh, after that I did one in Boston I did one in Lexington, Kentucky, and I did one in Key West, Florida, which I would do a million times again because it was my first time ever in Key West, and it was such a beautiful <laughs> community. And, you you know, on the campaign trail, it's the middle of the winter, and you're in Iowa and New Hampshire, so oh, when I you know. get to go to Key, Key West, it's, a, it's it almost... Even if it's just for a night, it almost feels like a vacation. But it was, yeah, so that was my first fundraiser. And I was completely blown away because the night before I went to D.C., I called Andrew Mamo, um, who was the communications department's chief of staff. And I called him in a panic, like, oh, my God, is anyone going to show up? Because I was convinced that no one would show up to see a campaign advisor like me do a fundraiser, and that they would only show up just to see um, they would only show up just to see Pete. So I was shocked when I walked into the bar, and there were like 120 people there, or something like that. Um, and it showed me a couple things: uh, one, how hardcore our supporters were, but. Two, how we'd done a really good job of, you know, fostering this community between uh, our supporters and not just a candidate, Pete and his husband, Chaston, but also our staff. And I think you may have talked about this a little bit with, did you ever talk to Stefan on your podcast uh, or no? No. Um, no. Uh, just like through DMs and I met him, I met, I met him in, <clears throat> in person, but it was so quick. Yes, but so Stefan, but this was a big thing that Stefan worked on was um, sort of building the relationship between not just Pete, but but also the staff and our supporters. And so it was incredible. You know, uh, on most of the other campaigns, I don't think you could ever imagine the staff and uh, the supporters having that close to relationship. And I remember at the time seeing reporters and sort of people on the other campaigns snarking, really, who's going to buy a ticket to see Liz Smith speak or whatever? And then, of course, they don't know how hardcore Team Pete is. And so it was really heartening to see. And it's such an amazing community that we built. And it was a testament um, to not just Pete as a, as a candidate, but to the type of campaign that we built that even uh, between supporters and staff, it felt like a family dynamic. Oh, yeah, for sure. And how much was the rules of the were the rules of the road uh, to be credited to that? Yeah, yeah, sure. The, I mean, the rules of the road, I think, helped build the community. You know, those came directly from Pete. Pete wrote them. It was really important. 
And, you know, the rules of the road were, like, sometimes a struggle for all of us. Um, <laughs> yeah, some, some of them, yes. I mean, especially in, and I write about in the book, some of those days in, you know, October, November, December, when it felt like the online attacks were never ending, when um, Pete was the target of every single other campaign and, um, frankly, the target of very, very nasty negative attacks. I know it was hard for staff and I know it was hard for supporters oh, to, yeah. uh, to sometimes hold back. But, yes, the rules of the road were really important and proud that we were the only campaign to, um, to sort of have a document like that. And we've seen since then other campaigns sort of adopt similar um similar guidance for staff and supporters. And it's really important, especially in, in, in a time of social media, where it's so easy for people to be cruel to one another, where it's so easy for people just to take shots at one another. Um, and I, it, it reflected, I think, the good nature of, um, of it reflected the what a good person, I would say, Pete is, because the nature of a campaign and the nature of its supporters is really shaped from the top. And so if you have a candidate at the top who is not a, a good, fundamentally good and decent person, um, you can sometimes see the supporters get a little bit out of control. And we, <laughs> yes, yeah, so no, you know, no, I'm not going to name right, any names. Right, I know. <laughs> I'm not going to name any names. Yes. I'm not going to name any names. But we, but we do know that um, there were other campaigns that really could have benefited from uh, and supporters that could have benefited from that sort of guidance. And I don't think that it did their candidates any good to have supporters who are out, you know, going wild and being so mean spirited and so, um, you know, out of control on the Internet. So it was really important for us. Yeah. You know, and the, it's the belonging, especially in the rules of the um, that I think made us all feel like one team. And yeah. I, I felt like, because I hadn't worked on any, many campaigns, but I'd heard that um, it wasn't the usual thing to feel like you were um, respected as a lowly volunteer. Like, I would, would consider myself a lowly volunteer, but I'm sure um, the campaign didn't think that we were, <laughs> that we were all working for the same cause. And every person that I met on the trail, you know, um, you know, Mike Schmuel, Nina Smith, yeah, you know, well, Pete and Chaston, of course. Um, you know, it was just they were everybody was so kind and considerate and respectful of everything that we were doing, and I think that that's really what made the difference. Yeah, well, yeah, and I would dispute your um, characterization of yourself as a lowly volunteer. It felt like everywhere we went, we saw you, and I know that you did a lot for that campaign <laughs> in terms of. Uh, volunteering, fundraising, all of that. But um, we did hear from a lot of supporters that this is the first time that they were involved in a campaign. And one of the reasons why they got involved was because of the sort of sense of belonging that the campaign fostered. Um, and people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And it, that was, um, you know, that sometimes it, it was very emotional sometimes to hear some of the stories of people and how they got involved and how they'd always sort of felt like sometimes that the, even in their own lives, like they were always on the outside, 
but the campaign made them feel loved, made them feel like they belonged, made them feel like they were respected. And uh, that was one of the most rewarding parts of that, you know, 14 month adventure of ours. Oh, definitely. So, but was it surprising at first when you, uh, the first sort of um, evidence of overwhelming support by um, volunteers or was it sort of like, oh yeah, this makes sense. (laughs) Or like we better adjust. As I, as I talk about in the book, we did not expect the campaign to take off as quickly and as soon as it did. Now, remind me, when did you get involved? Uh, well, the first I saw him at May, May 2nd, 2019, when he came to Minneapolis. Um, okay. Yeah, I didn't. I, it was, you know, it was that famous March CNN town hall. That's the first right. time I saw him. So Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, got it. Got it. Got it. So um, it's that's what I talk about in the book is when Pete announced his exploratory committee, it was a very, um, you know, we did it on a shoestring budget. Uh, it was three staffers. We got a conference room in Washington, D.C., near the White House, invited reporters. And it was very, very different from, you know, the highly produced announcements that we'd seen from other candidates up to that point. And it spoke to... Um, uh, one, I mean, at that point we had no money, but, um, it, it just spoke to how much of a long shot Pete was. And our goal for the first quarter, um, you know, the first three months was to raise $1 million. But after the CNN town hall, um, which was a month and a half after Pete announced, he just took off like a rocket ship, mm-hmm. um, within, um, within I think two days, we'd raised a million dollars. And then by the end of the quarter, we'd raised $7 million. So no, we were not prepared. Well, in a good way, we were, we were very surprised by the response that he, um, elicited from people just due to the CNN town hall and how much, uh, support he was able to attract. And along the way, from there, through the official announcement in South Bend on April 15th, you know, to his travels across Iowa. And then, of course, I think when we really, really, really got to see it was at the steak fry in Iowa in September. You were there, right? Were you there? Yes, uh, we had a, we took a busload of people from our Minnesota for Peak group. It was so right. fun. Right. And, and that was the first time I think as a campaign, we really saw the intensity of it because um, that was after Pete's camp numbers, poll numbers had sort of, I would say been stagnant or flatlined and it sort of had this charmed rise where he had gone up and up. But then over the summer, it sort of seemed like his moment had come and gone. Then there's the steak fry and, (laughs) He has more supporters there than yeah. any other candidate. Yeah, it, that was obvious. The, the loudest <laughs> contingent. And it it surprised us um, a little bit. Our Iowa team knew that we were going to have a really good turnout. But I was still skeptical. You know, I'm always – I try not to get my hopes up too high. Mm-hmm. Um, but then 
it really surprised reporters because reporters and national reporters in particular were already sort of writing Pete's obituary. Mm -hmm. And then they go and they see um, how we have the biggest turnout there. And not only that, the enthusiasm of our supporters, and it really changed how they thought about Pete the campaign, mm-hmm. um, and how they were covering him. So it was really, really important. Yeah. So that was in September. And before that was the Iowa state fair, which, which was so much fun. Um, yes. I, I mean, that must've, he must've gotten a little bump from that. And because he, there were no other candidates scheduled that day. So then the media could just walk around with him, <laughs> walk around the whole fair. And I saw right. you there and I, I couldn't handle, I think he was walking around for like three hours. I could only wa- handle walking around for two with the, on, with, you know, following the entourage. But I always told people after that, Oh my God, he's so fit. He's so in great physical condition. If he can walk around and talk that whole time, it's like amazing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I remember, yeah. I remember seeing you when he we paused somewhere for a second. It was, oh, and it was so hot and he was going around eating, eating everything, fair, yeah. <laughs> which is like, oh my, I honestly, I don't even understand how he could eat all that stuff and still go around. But yeah, no, that was great. And, um, I mean, the, there's a huge physical element to a presidential campaign. Um, because it's not like he was just walking around the fair and, However, it was so oh, it was hot. fast, and, too. He was walking fast. <laughs> yeah, and eating all this disgusting food is that, and by disgusting, I just mean very caloric and probably things you shouldn't be mixing, all the, like, you know, fried Oreos day. and slushies and pork chops and whatever. Um, it, it's delicious, but it's just maybe the human body, I don't think, is meant to um, combine all those things at one time. But on top of that, you have a scrum of, 30 reporters who are basically jostling you so you're and then you have people who are coming up to shake your hand to get your autograph to say hello to get a selfie and so it takes a lot out of you and luckily not every day on the campaign trail is quite that um physical but uh that that day definitely uh was Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he, he started to get, I I think a bump there, but for sure the steak fry and then the Liberty and justice dinner. And in my mind, that was like, okay. Um, rock star. (laughs) I know (laughs) when he entered to the smoke and everything that was, that was definitely, I think that was definitely one of my highlights, you know? And I did have a podcast episode on that. So I had my recorder in the room. So I've got, I've got sound from what it was like in the audience which is different oh than the God. sound that you have from the, so that was exciting. And then um, the day, the next day I went to a very small event. Uh, I saw you that at uh, St. Charles, Iowa, Charles city, sorry. Um, and that, so it was like the opposite sort of thing, you know, here uh, the, at the Liberty and justice, he was in the, the arena, you know, thousands and thousands of people, you know, very, a big, big, big deal. And then it's just this uh, totally opposite, very small setting at the Elks Club. So, um, and he can do both. He can do anything. He can talk to anybody. <laughs> he can. Right. <laughs> and that was critical to how he won Iowa, which is that he did events both big and small. And it's why I think those early primary states are important. Um, and the way that they're set up. And I know that they're going to, you know, Iowa's probably a thing of the past now, but one thing that, um, 
you do benefit from when it is a smaller state like Iowa or New Hampshire is that, yes, you can do those big rallies, but a lot of the time it is more intimate. It is, you know, sometimes it is just 20 people or 50 people and you have to do those small events to win. You have to go to the smaller counties to win, especially in a caucus state. And that's part of how Pete one is that he didn't just go to the metro areas. He didn't just go to the bigger cities in, in Iowa. He went everywhere. And he spent a lot of time in the ruby red, um, ruby red rural com- communities that a lot of the other candidates didn't. And that was what allowed him to, um, that's what allowed him to prevail in terms of the, the caucuses. Oh yeah, and then but but going back to the the LJ, um, the barnstormers. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that they were really um, instrumental in get helping to get such a huge crowd of us there and to keep us involved. So I want a shout out to them. It was yes, it was so love exciting. the barnstormers. So exciting. Yes. Oh my gosh. So you know uh, when. Why do you think so many people got involved in the campaign? Well, we talked about how belonging was part of it, but what about Pete? You know, um, this you know it's like the no-brainer kind of question because I'm we're talking to the choir here mostly with the listeners. But um, often in our campaign, we'd say the why Pete or hashtag why Pete, right? Um, and you know, he just like made everybody feel hope, feel feel good. And I know you write uh, several times about how he made you feel, you know, as a professional. Um, but um, was that obvious to you that obviously, um, obvious, obviously, uh, <laughs> that that's, that's why we, the hardcore, that's, that's why we felt the same way about him, how we thought he was the one. Uh, that's sort of awkwardly uh, worded question, but that now is our chance to talk to him as the one. No, I, no, I totally understand. Um, yeah. And as I read in the book, I I didn't know if people would take to it. I suspected they would because he was so different. And, and you know, he had that line in the campaign about, um, you know, it's time to change the channel. And I had faith that people were ready to sort of change the channel on all the endless partisanship, the endless warfare, the yelling, the screaming, the demonization that uh, goes on in politics. And he offered um, just a really calm, kind, decent voice that people gravitated toward because, you know, Trump had turned up the volume so much in politics, turned up the hate so much in politics. And there were so many Democrats who thought that to respond to Trump, you had to sort of be him. And Pete understood, no, actually, you have to be the opposite of him. And that's what people respond to. And that's why I do think that, sure, there were some long, long time, hardcore Democratic partisans who've been involved in multiple presidential campaigns or who volunteered and donated to multiple presidential campaigns who gravitated toward Pete, but also why there are people who got involved in politics for the first time because of him, because for the first time they heard someone who, um, one who treated them like adults and who two, uh, wasn't trying to, uh, 
you know, engage in the sort of race to the bottom that can happen in politics, wasn't trying to appeal to the worst of human beings, wasn't trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator, and was speaking to people, um, you know, uh, in a highly intelligent way, but also with kindness, respect. And those are a lot of things that we sometimes forget are important in politics. So um, that's why I do think he was able to attract all of this support. And he just tapped into the goodness of people. And we've, we don't do that enough in politics. And hopefully he provides an example for more politicians going forward that you don't just have to engage in this race to the bottom, that you can appeal to the goodness of other people, and, and that's enough. Oh, well said, well said. It's so important. And um, he continues in, in all, as uh, Secretary of Transportation in all of his media appearances. He's, he remains kind and, and logical, and I, I'm, I'm sure he's very well-liked. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah, that's the thing. Like once you get to know or you don't even have to spend very much time with him to to, to like him. <laughs> so that's what always bugged me during the campaign when, you know, anyone would say anything. Well, have you actually met him? Because I don't think you would say that if you met him, you know, right. If you talk well, to I him. Think it, yeah, no, I know. And it's just it's just one of the things about politics is, you know, people take their support for their candidates very personally. Mm-hmm. And when they see another candidate sort of rising and doing well, and especially an unconventional candidate like Pete, mm-hmm. you know, he was 37 years old, openly gay, mayor of a, of a city of 100,000 people, not exactly a traditional uh, resume for a presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. It did drive other candidates nuts. And it drove their supporters nuts because they wondered, well, why, why him and why not us? Yeah, it's not fair. And it's not his turn. He's not staying in his not lane fa- exactly. or something like that. And maybe in, I, I think I wrote something like this in the book, but maybe instead of complaining about him, they should have tried to learn from him mm-hmm. because clearly he was tapping into something that they weren't. And, you know, the meaner they got toward him, the more negative they got toward him. It, it's not like it helped them. So, um, again, as I said before, I hope people can learn from the example of Pete and why he was so successful because our politics would be a lot better if we had a lot more Pete's Pete's in it. Yes. Oh my gosh. You know, I'm going to have to get to the questions that are from the audience. (laughs) I asked on Twitter and Facebook um, if anybody had questions for you. Um, Many, many people wanted to thank you for everything that you did on the campaign and how much you helped Pete. So I just wanted to make sure that um, I told you that. And we could really see how, wow, everything that you were doing to advance his um, name and campaign was was working. So thank you for that. Yes. No, no, thank you. That's No, that's, um, it was, as I say in the book, honor of a lifetime, but thank you. More importantly, it's not what I did. It's what the thousands of supporters across the country Well, we worked did, as a so. team. We couldn't have done it, you know, without you and you couldn't have, the campaign couldn't have done it without us. So, um, we, we were part of the, the gift that, uh, Biden got, <laughs> he got us, uh, and when, um, Pete, endorsed Biden and we came with him that that uh, that was a that was pretty nice deal Um, at least from my perspective so um, now I do have a question for the campaign this is a 
I don't know, you've probably thought of this, but what change would you have made in the campaign if you could turn back time? Um, yeah, have you thought about like, oh, well, we should have done such and such differently, or oh, maybe so something else, or maybe you don't want to tell, tell us that. But that was a question. I know I saw that, and my thought on that is this. it's I, I'd rather focus more on the positive, frankly, than any changes we could have made. But I, look, any campaign, there's no campaign like ours that could have been prepared for how – how quickly we took off, you know, and mm -hmm. Mike talked about it in terms of like, we warped political time. It's like, we went, we skipped eight of the traditional um, steps that you go through in a presidential campaign. And that helped you frankly prepare for everything that's coming ahead in a presidential campaign. Um, so it's clear there were some growing pains in the campaign and but it's 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 hard to say how we could have remedied it because if we had let's say we'd spent money on getting more staff before the CNN town hall and he hadn't taken off, then we would have had to fold the campaign. But um, I think uh, you know a key lesson is that to invest early in having good staff and good infrastructure because it will you know stop you from making mistakes sort of amateur rookie mistakes that any campaign can make and but it's hard to say that we could have planned ahead for that because no one expected for us to take off that quickly but when you take off that quickly it does mean that you are then scrutinized the way that other candidates are mm -hmm. you know when you go from last in the pack to I talk about how a a couple of weeks after the CNN town hall, he was third in Iowa. Then you start to get the same scrutiny as other candidates, but oh we didn't gosh. have the infrastructure really to handle it. Um, That's a double whammy. I mean, I didn't even, exactly, exactly. So it's, you know, sort of champagne problems, but I would say that we did lag behind a little bit in um, being able, in hiring staff. And that probably hurt us a little bit in terms of, you know, being to first, being able to first see problems that were, you know, arising or being able to harness the power of all of our volunteers to our, for the maximum um, gain. That's so I guess I would probably say that. Yeah, well, that's that's a really important to point out. And I know our regional director, Kirsten, was saying, well, we're building the rocket ship as it's taking off. <laughs> So that's that was her analogy because we are always asking, well, when do we get a campaign? Uh, when do we get staff? Blah blah blah. So exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, all this, uh, all these volunteers who and supporters who wanted to do something, and um, so, but you know, th then we just uh, did our own deal, whatever. Like if we saw something that needed to be done, we did it, and that was welcomed. Our contributions were welcomed. Like Minnesota, we had our state fair booth and. That was a huge success. Um, so uh, across the country, that's what I was finding, that these grassroots groups were just, you know, doing whatever they thought, the, you know, would work. And I think just have, knowing that their contributions were welcome. And that's part of the right. whole teamwork and the, the rules of the road thing. So we felt like uh, uh, we're working together for the same goal. Okay. So I have a question about, you know, how Pete, the, the go everywhere... Um, on yes. media. So one person asked, why didn't Pete go even more f to the due to more leftist um, media outlets like the Young Turks 
and then right so so the the extremes on both ends i guess because he he was he was going on fox and um this i'm just asking the question oh totally well what i would say is this is um on a presidential campaign your time is very very valuable and pete did more media not even close not even close than any other candidate so you really and even even with our go everywhere strategy, you have to factor in sort of the opportunity costs, right? So um, going to the very far right, we're really not going to, there are not a lot of de- Democrats that are reading the Daily Wire. Right. There are not a lot of Democrats who are listening to Ben Shapiro. Right. Um, and going to the very far left, you know, there are not a lot of Pete Buttigieg voters who are going to be watching the Young Turks. Right. So, so you were strategic um, about it. Yes. So we had to be strategic about it. And um, we sometimes the media makes it sound like we just said yes to everything. And that, you know, in the early days that when I was the only communications staffer there for, you know, a month or month and a half, whatever it was, um, that my strategy was saying yes to everything. And no, it it wasn't quite that simple. We said yes yes to everything that made sense. We said yes to everything that um, I thought would be of strategic importance to Pete. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. Most of the time I think it was. But yeah, if the question was, well, could he, should he be spending time with the barnstormers or be on Ben Shapiro's show? Like those are the trade-offs that you have to have then we would rather have him, you know, uh, go and talk to the barnstormers or whatever it is. So it really is just about how to maximize his time. And Mm -hmm. on a presidential campaign, there are so many demands on his time that we, it's not like we could go everywhere. And so we just want to be strategic, figure out, okay, well, if there are, if there is a strategic reason for going on here, if, if there are persuadable voters, let's do it. If not, then no. Wow. Um, that's a great answer. Somebody asked about your cowgirl boots. Um, <laughs> the comic from Yes. Yeah, so I, I own, I own, a, I have a few p- pairs of cowboy boots as I worked in South Dakota in 2004 and I bought, I started my love affair with cowboy boots there. Um, they're really comfortable. They give you a little bit of a lift like heels and they're a little bit more formal looking than sneakers, but um, mostly they're really, really comfortable. So there was a pair that I wore um, almost exclusively on the campaign trail and I just considered them my lucky boots. And um, so I'd wear them on nights of debates. I would wear them on, on election nights, all of that, because I did sort of have, um, <laughs> I use them as an emotional crutch and I did believe that they're my good luck charm. But for anyone who has never owned cowboy boots, I really, really recommend them because once you break them in, it, it just feels like you're walking on air and it, they feel like the most comfortable sneakers that you've ever worn. Wow. Good to know. But I like hearing they were your lucky boots. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But, you know, I wore them at, them at the Iowa State Fair. I mm-hmm. wore them on the bus tours. I wore them at, you know, the debates. So they were my lucky boots for sure. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so we're starting to run out of time here. So I've got to get to I'm sorry. I'm going to have to skip some of my okay, questions. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. Yeah. No, no, you're <laughs> we just have so many questions. But uh, people are really wondering, what can we do uh, to help in the midterms? Um, and, um, specifically what can we do to help Mallory McMorrow? 
And three of three effective actions a volunteer can take. So midterm, midterm, midterm. Right. So most important is one get, get involved in your local communities. Um, if if there are big or important races there, and by big, I mean. I don't mean it needs to be U.S. Senate race or a gubernatorial race or whatever it is. If it's a competitive race for state house, state ledge, county clerk, whatever it is, get involved because we need to elect Democrats at every level. And one thing we saw recently is Republicans for 50 years were relentless at building up the Republican Party at all levels. And that is part of how they were able to get the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court. And we need to have a similar 50-year strategy. And this is something that Pete talked about a lot on the campaign, which is we need to stop treating the presidency like it's the only office that matters. So one, I would say get involved in any of your sort of local campaigns. Um, if if they are, you know, if you do, if they're competitive between Democrats and Republicans, um, if you want to get involved in campaigns outside your local community, look to ones where your support can matter most and where um, Democrats actually, one, need your help and two, can benefit from your help. One thing we saw, for instance, in 2020 was, I think, that $54 million went to Amy McGrath's campaign in Kentucky, um, a lot of it from small donors, whereas in total, only... 51 or $50 million was spent on every state legislative race across the country. So that's not a great allocation of resources. So um, I, there, there are going to be a lot of Democrats who are going to be soliciting small dollar donations from you and using, you know, sort of emotional appeals, but they're not going to be in races that Democrats can win. So make sure that if, if you are, going to volunteer or give small dollar donations to people is to people who can actually win and in in races where we really need the support. So for instance, on the, you know, gubernatorial or Senate level, just because those are easier to rattle off than house races, you know, races in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, those are going to be really key races. Um, Ohio, is also going to is also a potential for Democrats to win, um, and don't be sort of lured in by the viral videos online that we see. Um, but most importantly, is get, yeah, get involved in the local level and and really, if you can, try to help build up Democrats um, from the bottom up because we did lose a lot of local seats in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, and we got to build that bench back up. As for Mallory, um, she's. Uh, her goal of this cycle is to flip the Michigan State Senate, which is going to be really important. Um, and so if any supporters here live in Michigan, I would say, um, you know, reach out there, go to her website, see if you can help volunteer, help uh, go door to door for some of the targeted candidates. And for people outside Michigan, um, I'm sure that they would appreciate $5 from you for their campaign efforts because, um, you know, she's already raised a million dollars to flip the state Senate, which is amazing. Um, but uh, it's going to take a lot of it's going to take a lot of money. And it's going to be the first time in in almost 30 years that if, if they're able to do it, that the Michigan would see a Democratic state Senate. Well, that's exciting. 
Okay, well, I'll be following that. Oh my gosh. Well, we're all really concerned about the midterm. So I, a lot of people want to put their um, concern into and that energy into actual action. So yeah, thank you so much. That was really uh, important information that you just gave us. So I know that we're, we've got to end this. You're really busy, got other interviews. Uh, so I'm going to end with like, what are your next steps? So now that you've got a New York Times bestseller under your belt, well, what's on your bucket list going forward? <laughs> <laughs> you can just relax um, now. You've done everything. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, so... I'm going to finish. I've got a, a few more weeks of, of going out, um, promoting the book. And, you know, after in a couple hours, I'm flying to San Francisco and then I'm going to L.A. And then next week I'm going to be in D.C. and then in Cal Colorado. And then I'm going to be I'm going to be pairing some book events with local Democratic events, you know, to use the book to help um, you know, raise money for Democrats. I think I'll be doing that in places like Michigan and Ohio, but, um, I am, what's next is one helping Democrats, obviously in the midterms. I don't know in my bucket list. I didn't, to, to be honest with you, I didn't ever have being a New York times bestseller <laughs> on my bucket list. Oh, and well, I why limit yourself on bucket lists, right? <laughs> and I didn't have be, it being a senior advisor to Pete on my bucket list. So one thing I've learned in life is that a lot of the best things that have happened to me have sort of been surprises. Obviously, they don't come without a lot of hard work. But um, I, I would, I like to, I would like to travel a little bit more. But on my bucket list would be helping, helping Democrats more, and really helping Democrats on the local level because they've got enough help for Senate races, for gubernatorial races, for presidential races, but maybe helping to bring more attention to um, sort of the less glamorous races that that we don't always pay attention well, to. Well, you'll make but, them glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. But it's been really fun working with people like um, Mallory McMorrow to um, help bring more attention to the local level because um, Republicans have done that so effectively, and now Democrats need to start doing that oh. as well. Yes. Well, you know, a lot of people ask you the question of, will Pete run again and will you work for him again? And so I'm not going to ask that and I'm not going to make you answer, but I, this is how I'm going to say it. Well, Liz, I really hope that someday Pete Buttigieg runs for president again, and then I hope I see you on his list of campaign staffers and we will see each other again on the trail. So that is my my wish. <laughs> yes, well, I certainly hope he runs again. He's he said he doesn't know if he will run again, but I at some point I'm probably going to age out of working on presidential campaigns. It's very tough I, on the personal life, very tough on um, the body, but um, I certainly hope to see him running for something again. Oh yes, well, thank you so much for uh, being on my Twitter Travels for Pete podcast today. It was so much fun talking to you. I do appreciate our conversation today, and I wish you um, the best of luck with your book and everything else that you do in your future. Great. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and everybody, if you haven't already uh, gotten any given Tuesday, a political love story by Liz Smith. Go out and get it right now. You'll really enjoy the read. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Twitter Travels for Pete Next Steps Edition. Now everybody get to work. <laughs>